Now, do you see the scene? There's been a draft in his place for years. <laughs> One day, he said to his wife, I, I think I'll take out the floorboards and see what the hell that draft is from. And he got out his hammer and his saws and stuff, and he began to remove a few boards from the house he'd lived in for many years. the floor of his living room, he found a hole, 1,000 feet deep. Exactly how deep a hole 1,000 feet deep is, friends? There was just no ground there, said Mr. Stainer, who has lived in this house in the county Durham mining village for over 20 years. He instantly moved his furniture out of the room, barricaded it off from his two children, and called in the local expert on holes in the ground. <laughs> The National Coal Board. It said Mr. Stainer's find was a 200-year-old mine shaft and informed them for over 20 years his house had been barely secured to the edges of the 1,000-foot hole. God, it's a horrifying thought that we've sat here for 20 years with absolutely nothing but air for 1,000 feet underneath us, nothing. The room has always been very cold and drafty, but God, I never knew that there was a hole 1,000 feet deep under my living room right where my television set was. All right. Can you imagine that? 1,000 feet deep. Well, now, to give you an idea of how deep a thousand feet is, if you don't really appreciate that, I'll give you some things to measure it by. The Empire State Building is just roughly a hundred feet higher than that. Roughly. The Empire State Building is about 1,100 feet. One thousand feet. How high is a thousand feet? Well, I'll give you another way to measure it. They figure that the average story of the average building is roughly 10 feet. In other words, a two-story building is uh, 20 feet. Three-story building is 30 feet. So you can figure 1,000 feet is roughly 100 stories up. And this house was right on the edge of it. In fact, it was it was over the hole. That's the point. It was over. It wasn't on the edge. It was over the hole. But the edges of the house were barely secured to the edges of the hole. 
and good wind and maybe a hard rain, and the next thing you know, poor old Stainer's house is falling a thousand feet. <laughs> well, now, you know, I want to tell you, uh, this this is something that people, uh, the vague fears that we have like this, uh, people are always afraid of space and sky. You know, many guys are, are uh, the idea of going up in the air is a real fearsome thing to many people. I'm a pilot, and I know that, uh, that there's a surprising number of people who are really absolutely psychologically against flying. I mean, they, they, they flip. Barry Farber's one of those guys. He really is. He's, he's really got a thing against flying. You couldn't get him a plane. I have other friends. I can name, you know, dozens of them that are like this. But nobody seems to fear the earth over which they walk. And in many cases, that can be infinitely more dangerous because you can control the, 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 the sky. You, know. you really can. Well, I grew up in, a, in, a, in an area of the country where the earth attacked people. The earth, I'm talking about the ground upon which you walked. And I'm sure that most guys here in this area never know these things. They think if you're going to get attacked, it's going to be by a hurricane. What's well, going? To, they think of natural forces as almost always being in the air. Hurricane, tornado, thunderstorm. Those things are real. I mean, and they're there. But at least you can see them coming. <laughs> and they have a thing called the Weather Bureau that forecasts that stuff. But I'll never forget when I was a kid. Uh, I lived in the northern Indiana part of northern and do you know anything about northern indiana most people think of states in blocks so if you say to a lot of people arizona they think of sun they think of warm winters well you know there are large parts of arizona where the weather the winters are like 50 times hotter that is colder in the winter and hotter in the summer than you could ever believe but the, it's the cold that most people don't think of. They don't, they, don't, they don't see that. So if I say to you, Arizona, you see sun, you see cactus, you cacti, you prefer that, you see uh, guys riding horses. <laughs> you know, you never see somebody struggling through six feet of snow with the temperature five degrees below zero in a, in a, in a car with skid chains, you know. And this is what's ha what happens in large parts of Arizona. Right now, what about Indiana? Most people think Indiana, you know, barefoot boy with cheeks of tan and that kind of stuff. And they will think, they will think, let's say, of uh, of the of the uh, steel mills. They, uh, if, and that's rare that the average guy does see. Uh, but there are steel mills in northern Indiana. Gary, right? You know about this. But let me tell you something about that area there. It's right, take a map out, take a look at it. You'll find it uh, uh, very illuminating if you don't know much about that part of the country. Not many people do because very few novels are ever written about that part of the country. Most people know about their, their own country through movies. Most people know about the West through seeing endless movies, ranging all the way from James Garner to, to uh, you know, to Gary Cooper. So they think they know all about the West. They, and usually most of those movies are photographed in one small part of the West, always the same place. You can see endless pictures of everybody from Steve McQueen through, uh, through James Garner by way of uh, Gary Cooper riding past the same rock. You know, there are some areas out in the West right now where you have to book 
like, say, three months in advance to film a scene there because all the other movie companies are in line? Did you know that? Yeah, to ride through the same lonely trails. <laughs> And uh, but so so the movies all have the same backdrop. You see, they never show uh, much of the West outside of that particular part. Very few scenes in the West, let's say, are photographed on those fantastic, endless, uh, almost uh, frightening, endless prairies of say uh, Wyoming. Wow! But uh, nevertheless, Indiana's like that. See? And I want you to get out your map and take a look at that area right in the extreme northeastern part of Indiana. Just follow the lake, and you'll notice that the top of Indiana is literally, the border of Indiana is literally Lake Michigan. It's the shore of the lake. And that lake just sort of hangs down, Lake Michigan, like a great big, fat old overripe gourd just hanging down there. So if you, if you can imagine the Great Lakes just sprayed out like that, you can see them in your mind as lakes. Can you name all the Great Lakes? All right, I've given you one, Michigan. Oh, name another one, Jerry. Right. That's two. Come on, you got three to go. <laughs> That's right, now you got three. What are the other two? All right, I won't say any more about it. I'll let you think about it. It's amazing how many people can't name the Great Lakes. Well, we're talking about one called Michigan, Lake Michigan. And uh, Lake Michigan is deep in certain parts of it that may surprise you to learn. It ranges from 600 to 1,200 feet deep. Uh, this is a deep lake, and it's a dangerous lake. Dangerous in the sense that uh, un absolutely unchartable squalls suddenly break out on Lake Michigan. It's like a huge flu. If you if you look at the map, you'll see Lake Michigan sort of hangs down between two great bodies of land. On the left side, you can see Wisconsin. On the left side, as you look at the map, on the right side is Michigan. These two great bodies of land, and right down, splitting right in the middle, is this long pendulous lake. Yeah, Lake Michigan. And when you fly over Lake Michigan, you see it. It's got a curious bottle green color. And uh, sometimes when, when the lake kicks up, when the wind blows, the, 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 the waves are so dangerous. They're not like the big combers that you see here in, in uh, the, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. These are angry, high, chopping waves, and they'll break a, an oar boat right in half, and it'll go down without a, without a trace. Every year... Uh, a good number of big ships are lost in Lake Michigan, with a lot of lives lost, too. Did you know that? It's a mean, angry lake. And it looks so benign. Well, in the northern Indiana part, right up there where, where you see that, that, that state cut off by the top of, of uh, this lake, this part of Indiana, for maybe 30 or 40 miles inland, that would be inland today, used to be underwater. The lake used to extend in ancient times. Now, I'm not talking about times when men lived there. I'm talking about times many, many eons ago. That used to be Lake Bottom, a large part of, uh, of Indiana, that northern part of Indiana. Well, when the lake receded, it left Lake Bottom. Now, what is Lake Bottom? Well, in the case of this particular lake, it's sandy. It's sand. 
This was a sand lake. The bottom of Lake Michigan is largely sand in that part of... And they used to have superb beaches along there. But it's sand and beautiful yellow golden sand. Well, there's more to it than that. There's a lot of things that, that are at the bottom of a lake. Uh, many things, including... Uh, uh, deposits of lake weeds that have uh, petrified over the ages and that lay just under the soil there. We used to find, for example, when I was a kid, in that whole area, our, our whole, the whole area is sandy, see? And when you would dig in the sand, you'd dig to build a cave or something, you would come across layers of, of peat. Have you ever dug peat? Well, peat really comes from that. Uh, it's ancient plants that have, have compressed. And it's just before a, a, the formation of coal. And this is usually found in watery areas like marsh. It's why they call it a peat bog. So we used to burn peat in our Boy Scout trips. We'd go out and we would dig in the sand for peat. Whereas if you were in this area uh, and you were a Boy Scout and you'd go out on a trip, you'd go out and you'd look for wood. Well, we used to dig in the ground and dig up peat. And it burns beautifully. You've probably heard of peat fires in Eng throughout England and places like Wales and, and Ireland and Scotland. Well, here's the sand. Now, what does this do? Why, why does it? Why do? Why do uh, evil forces come out of this? Well, very interesting stuff happens in a country like that. I'll never forget this. I was a kid, and I had just gotten my ham station, my my call letters. And uh, for any of you hams out there, you know that you you get to know guys on the air as a ham that you never meet. You never meet them. You just talk to them. You may talk to them five years become very friendly, first-name basis, you know. You, you talk every night, and you never meet this guy. It's one of the curious hobbies. It's a, it, it, that's a mysterious quality of the hobby. And generally, when you do meet the guy, you're often uh, not only surprised and astounded, but you, <laughs> you would never have anything in common with him if it wasn't for this thing, you know. You're talking at night. And so every night, I would get on the band. For those of you guys that are interested in technicalities, it was the 75-meter band. I was on 75 phones, and every night, at low power, and I'd work all the local guys. Well, I got to got to know a guy just by talking to him. His name is Roy. I won't give, give you his call because it isn't important. A call, incidentally, to a ham is as important as his name. So I won't give you the call because it's not important. But uh, nevertheless, I used to talk to this guy. Well, he lived in a town. Now, if you've got your map... The lake curves up from the town that I lived in, which was uh, in northern Indiana. It wasn't Hammond, by the way. It was near Hammond. So this town, this, we were about a mile from the lake, living on this sandy loam, the sand and, and peat, where Indians had roamed. By the way, many Indians had lived in this area throughout the past, and it was, it was nothing at all, and, I, and I'm sure it still isn't. Uh, it was nothing at all to go out on a Saturday if you were a kid and, and uh, you're fooling around out in a vacant lot or something and find arrowheads. And uh, you'd find stone axes and things. And they were there. They're just there to pick up. In fact, almost every kid I knew, and this is not the old days. So I don't mean that Shepard's talking about the old days. Not at all, because this stuff is so plentiful out there. And it's under certain conditions uh, in the middle of town. See, I, I did not live in the country. Don't get that idea. This is, not ur this is almost urban. It's what we would call suburban life. But it was easy to go to a vacant lot where you'd be digging around in a vacant lot making a cave or something and you'd find arrowheads and you'd find spear points and stuff. And, and, and practically every kid I knew had a bag 
just like a, a chamois skin bag, like you'd keep marbles in. And he would have a chamois skin bag full of arrowheads and stuff. We'd trade them back and forth. And they were not considered anything, really, particularly. It was just a thing, you know. And uh, just like collecting bottle caps. So <laughs> that's the kind of scene it was. Well, now, among other things that may surprise you about that part of the country and about the country in general uh, is, is uh, the stuff that grows there. For one thing, when you think of cactus, most people think of Arizona. Well, cactus grew everywhere out there. This was a certain type of cactus, a northern cactus. It was low and flat. Have you ever seen that kind of cactus where the big flat leaves and the, they have prickles on them, you know, lie flat on the ground? And they're low, flat cactus, and almost always they're exactly the color of the sand. They're, they're kind of a sandy, greenish, yellowish color. And my God, can they hurt you. Uh, I want to tell you, uh, playing ball, we would play ball in, in ball fields that we would make in a vacant lot. And if you, if, if, if you got a cactus spine, one of these little tiny spines, so, so thin and so fine that it was almost invisible to the naked eye, if you got one of these things, say, uh, under your fingernail, stuck in there, it wouldn't really hurt much at first. And then it would begin to hurt and pain, and it would begin to fester, and wow, they can give you a, a fantastic problem, <laughs> these, these little cactus. And you can't see them. You know? So we had cactus. Uh, another thing, one of the first memories that I have when we moved out there, as a, I must have been about six or something like that, maybe, yeah, six, because uh, I was just uh, going into first grade. I guess that's when you're six, isn't it? Something like that. Was the first sight. We were moving from Chicago. Suddenly we're coming out there. Was a wind blowing. I can still see it. A wind. A hot wind. We moved in the middle of summer. Tremendous hot wind blowing down across this concrete street we lived on with these houses. It was a new subdivision. You know how many new subdivisions are have a curious raw look like they've dug up the, the, the ground and you can see where new uh, foundations have been put in and this wind is just blowing across this road with a with a tremendous drive and, and it was hot. It must have been 95 or 100 degrees and dry and rolling along across over the road is almost, well, almost as fast as a car would go. This is the thing that gets you. Uh, is the speed of these things. As far as you could see were tumbleweeds rolling in the wind and rolling across this road and street and rolling between the houses and, and getting jammed up against the front porch. And about every two or three days, my old man would have to go out and, and clear away all the tumbleweeds that had rolled up, up against the porch. Have you ever seen a tumbleweed actually rolling? Most people haven't, and, uh, but they're they're round. They they really are round. They're 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 about the average tumbleweed. I would say is about three feet in diameter, roughly, and it's a sort of an oval. It's almost egg shaped. You see, where the bottom where it grows is flat, and it's round, and it's very it's like a Brillo pad, and it's like a <laughs> a growing Brillo pad, and it's it's brown and crackly, and uh, they they roll. They just roll like mad. As soon as the the thing is, is that it's, uh, well, I suppose it's mature. What happens is that when they ripen and mature, the thing just detaches from the roots, and that's the way tumbleweed spread. It carries the seeds that way. And so it rolls. And uh, on, on top of that was a layer of uh, milkweeds that were being driven by the wind. These milkweed uh, 
little tiny fluffs of this white cottony stuff with the seed on it and the milkweeds. She said, the whole air, air is filled with milkweeds and among it are thousands of, of uh, moths. Uh, every couple of weeks we'd have these invasion of, of various types of moth and the wind blowing this across. Now this probably sounds to you like the Wild West or something, but this is Indiana and this is still there, so don't think it's the old days. It's still there. I've just come back from there and I can tell you it's there yet. Well, I used to talk to this guy on, on uh, amateur radio, which reminds me, this is WOR New York. Uh, <laughs> speaking of amateur radio, incidentally, uh, uh, I have, uh, uh, we have we've had a great day today uh, having a book signing at Bamberger's over in Newark and at Paramus. And uh, in answer to a lot of calls that have come in, I would like to tell you that we're going to do two more big wild book signings and if you've missed one of these they're really great we have a wild time at them and if you don't know what i'm talking about i have a new collection of short stories called wanda hickey's night of golden memories and uh, it's been out and uh, doing very well and everybody uh, has been uh, you know nice and so on about it and so it, uh, this coming monday between one and three one that's one p.m and three p.m I'm going to be in Bamberger's again. We're going to do two more big Bamberger's book signings, but in two different stores. Uh, between 1 and 3, Monday, September 20th, in the book department, we'll be out on the, in the big shopping center in East Brunswick, New Jersey. That's the big Route 18 shopping center. So if you live out around East Brunswick in that area, we're going to be at Bamberger's in the big Route 18 shopping center in the book department at Bamberger's between one and three and if you'd like to have me autograph your book or say what uh, you know some evil thing inside of it or if you're thinking of in terms of getting it as a christmas gift you know a lot of people this is surprises me i'm always impressed with people who buy christmas gifts this early you know i must have signed a hundred books that are being given for christmas and i write in there merry christmas i have never bought a christmas gift for anybody more than 30 milliseconds before christmas <laughs> i get you know but uh, anyway we're going to be there between 1 and 3. That's Bamberger's Book Department in uh, East Brunswick, New Jersey, in the shopping center there, Route 18. And then that afternoon, later, if you have to work and you can't make it or you go to school or something, between 4 and 6, we're going to be in Menlo Park, Bamberger's, that big Menlo Park shopping center. It's a fantastic shopping center over there. And uh, we're going to be in Bamberger's Book Department in Menlo Park in the shopping center, 4 to 6 p.m., that's this Monday, September 20th, right? Okay. Well, you know, this, 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 I think, I think more than anything else has, has made me conscious of the earth. And the, you know that there's a whole, have you ever heard about that cult? You know there's a cult that believes that the earth is hollow? And they really believe it. I mean, it's a whole worldwide cult. They believe, have you ever heard of that cult? Do any of you know the name of it? They believe that the earth is hollow and there's another world going on inside of our earth that an entire population <laughs> lives in this inside the earth. And, and what uh, they base it on, there's all kinds of different sub- I suppose you can call them subdivisions of this cult, but one of the subdivisions says that the reason there is is that many, many eons ago, uh, at the end of the Ice Age, that the, the, a group of people were 
were uh, were driven underground because of the fantastic conditions of the time, and the earth is hollow, and they have grown independently of us. Have you ever heard of this this cult? And that actually people are living, and a whole world exists under our feet. Well, and that people believe this. Uh, yeah, they do. Uh, there's a, there's a I don't know the name of it. Do you know the name of this cult? Uh, and, and in fact, you can even buy, you know, they have a whole literature and a whole thing based on it. They even have, quote, proof, uh, various types of explorers who claim this is so. Now, uh, I think that any belief of this kind comes basically from fear. Like many people, somehow fear the air. They fear the sky. So naturally, they see evil things in it. They see UFOs. They see invasions of monsters uh, coming out of uh, Mars, you know, the old Orson Welles bit and all that. So uh, fear causes religions to grow. And I can understand it. Uh, if you've ever lived in a, in a country where the earth can be feared. So anyway, I'm on the band every night on 75, and I'm talking to all these local guys. And it was one guy who lived in a town called Miller, Indiana. You know, like Miller like the Miller's Tale. And uh, this town was up on, right on the lake, and it was up near the Michigan border. If you look carefully in your map, you'll see that Indiana and Michigan come together just north and east of Gary up there. There's, the, there's the, an area in there, and, and just below that is South Bend and Mishawaka. Notre Dame University is there. And uh, there's, a, there's a place called Michigan City, Indiana, which is right across the border, obviously, from Michigan. Well, right up in that area exists one of the most interesting, geologically interesting parts of our country. And geologists travel from many parts of the world, particularly, of course, the United States, just to study that part. Because you know what they've got there? They've got one of the rarest of geological phenomena, actual dunes. Now, what is a dune? A dune is not just a sand hill. And, and many times people tend to, to say that. They, they know a place where they have a big hill of sand, and they call it a sand dune. Not so. A dune is moving sand that actually moves. And it, 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 it's as if you can imagine a sea of sand, and the dune is an individual wave on the sea. And, and a combination of gravity and wind and earth rotation causes this, this wave to move. Well, how big are they? Well, <laughs> that's what makes them interesting. Some of the sand dunes in that area are around 800 feet high. That's a big hill made of nothing but sand with a few little scraggly pine trees growing here and there and little pieces of, uh, of uh, undergrowth and tumbleweeds growing. And you get up to the top of one of these dunes on the, on the lake shore and you can look out over the lake and you can see nothing but, in fact, you can see that lake stretching off into the gray-blue distance as far as you can see, way off. You know, this is, this is like an ocean. And when you're high enough in one of the dunes, you can see the big curve of Lake Michigan. You can see it curve all around. And off to your left, way off in the distance, 
just through the, the haze, so, so distant that you can't quite believe that you're seeing it. You can see Chicago. It just sort of drifts in and out of the haze, way off there on the horizon, just laying there. And off to your right, as you look, you can see curving way up north and going, uh, just curving in an easterly, northerly direction, you can see Michigan. And you can make out way off in the distance a, a distant Michigan city, like, say, uh, Benton Harbor or St. Joe. So here you are. You're looking. Now you're standing at the top of a hill. And you're looking down in three states. You're standing in Indiana. You can see Illinois. And if you squint hard enough, you probably can even see north of Chicago, off to your left. You can see the beginnings of Wisconsin. And there it is, that great lake, and way out on the water, way, way out, you saw, you see those big, long, flat oar boats that move across that lake like thin pencils. They just lay on the horizon, and they barely move. These great oar boats going into Indiana Harbor and coming into Gary, bringing the ore. Now, where do they come from? Well, these boats have come all the way down through Lake Michigan, through the locks, through Sault Ste. Marie. And if you look directly up, if you could see far enough, way up there, you're looking up into the North Woods. Does that, does that word mean anything to you? North Woods? They don't use it out here in the East. North Woods is an area, the North Woods, and it's one of the last true wildernesses that exist on our continent. And it's way up north of Lake Michigan, up north of the thumb of Michigan up there. Way up there is this great, impenetrable, fantastic wilderness of huge trees and bears and lonely lakes, great muskellunge, and some of the most incredible winter weather on the entire continent. As a matter of fact, International Falls, which is up in that area, the temperature drops regularly in that area. Every winter, to around 50, 55 below zero. They don't have that kind of weather in the Arctic. <laughs> no, they don't, man. And it is murderous. And it's Indian country up there. Many Indians live up in that area. And that's where wild rice comes from. You ever get this wild rice? You ever buy wild rice? Well, it comes from that area up in Minnesota, way up in the lake country. Places like Rice Lake and Sand Lake and Pebble Lake, way up there. So... I remember talking to this guy in Miller, Indiana, who lived in that area where these great sand dunes, this town is a town that is among sand dunes. And every summer when you'd go out to the, you'd go out to the beach, see these are fantastic beaches, or they used to be, and they still are, this is the Indiana Dunes State Park. Uh, you'd go out there, this is what they've attempted to, have you heard the, the great the campaigns to preserve the Indiana Dunes? Have you heard of these campaigns? Well, they've been written up in the Times a hundred times. It's a whole big story. Because these are the only true dunes that exist in the North American continent. Now, you're going to get a lot of people write angry letters writing in, I'm sorry, this is so. And uh, I have been told this by, and I've read this in innumerable geological commentaries on the area. Why are they true dunes? Well, they're moving they have certain dune characteristics that are specific geological characteristics. Well, every night I would get on the air and I would talk to this guy. 
among other guys, see. And he was uh, living up there in in uh, Miller, Indiana. Well, of course, I knew the area very well. It was only four or five miles from my home, maybe six, seven, something like that. And every summer when we would go up there to the beach, the entire landscape has been subtly changed. Can you imagine going out to Jones Beach every year, and every year it looks different? Well, that's because the hills had moved in the winter, and they've changed. Various things have happened. Trees that were once there are now gone because the hill has moved over them. Or they've receded, and now there's a, there's a great area where there's grass and undergrowth where before there used to be a hill. Strange. And, 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 and you just got so that you would look forward to that, going out to Miller every year and seeing what's happened, you know, over the winter. Well, it's not many people live in a, in a country where the landscape literally moves and changes, where the mountains walk around and uh, the lakes suddenly appear or disappear or swamps appear that weren't there or they go. Well, I was talking to this guy for a long time. And one day... Uh, he made a curious, funny statement. And he said, "He said, well, he says I'm, I'm going to have to." He said, "I think I, I don't know." He said, "I don't know how much longer I can be in this, uh, in this QTH, which means his home in Ham Talk. I don't know how long, much longer I can be in this QTH." He said, uh, "You know, the things are happening." And uh, so I, I, I didn't think anything. You know, I didn't want to get into his personal life and say, "What's the matter?" Yeah, you know, I can't pay the rent or what. Well. <laughs> so this kept on. We just kept talking. Well, one night, I'm talking to another ham. And he said, uh, hey, he said, uh, we're all going to go out and we're going to have a benefit. Would you like to come for a, like to come uh, and be part of this benefit? And I was just a kid, you know. I had about 12 cents in my pocket. He said, we're giving a benefit for Roy. I said, a benefit for Roy? What do you mean? What happened to Roy? So well, did you hear about it, his house? And I said, no, what? I said, oh, man. He said, uh, I don't want to talk about it in the air. He said, uh, because he may be listening, you know, and it's kind of a bad scene. I said, well, gee, you know, yeah, I'll go to the benefit. And I didn't know what happened. So I met the guy that afternoon, the ham that I'd been talking to, and he said, he says, well, he says, what happened was over the winter, Roy's house was swallowed up by the dunes. Just swallowed up. I said, his house was swallowed up? He said, yeah. He said, and man, he's really he's really uh, up against it because, you know, he said uh, he couldn't get any insurance or anything like that. And, and the guy's house was gone, completely gone, just swallowed up. And the guy's really, you know, in trouble. We're going to have a benefit and try to, you know, help him out a little bit. Well, that Saturday we had the benefit for Roy. And he's just sitting there, you know, with his, his wife and a couple of kids and kind of looking sad. And all the hams were selling tickets. And they had a had an auction and stuff where they gave away tickets and raised money for the guy. I think we raised about $1,200 or something that night. Well, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't I couldn't resist. I, I, I knew where he lived. I had seen his house. And he, he lived in a seven-room house, just like the kind of house you probably live in in your suburbs. And, and he had an antenna and a garage and, you know, and everything else. So I said to Flick, I said, Flick, I'm going to go out and take a look at this place. I can't believe it. And Flick said, well, come on, let's go. So we jump in Flick's car and we went out to the dunes. And this was in the winter. You rarely went out there. 
at that time because, oh, the wind was fierce and mean out there. So we got out there, and it's cold, and we drove down this long road past houses. You know, there was a town there. We passed houses and the hills and the dunes were all sitting there, and we came around this corner where there were vacant lots and stuff where Roy had lived. And where Roy had lived, there was just this big, impassive, 500-foot hill of sand. It had just snuck up and just quietly swallowed up Roy's house. Well, we climbed up the sand. It's a hill, and the weeds were growing on it. We climbed up the sand, and uh, we got about halfway up sand. Not halfway up the hill, but about halfway up to the place where Roy's house was, had been. And we're sweating because it was a steep hill. And then you began to see things. You see a shingle laying there, a piece of wood sticking out of the, sticking out of the sand, a post. You could see just evidences there had been something here. We climbed up to about maybe 300 feet above the level of the ground around and looked down this long slope down there. Nothing. It wasn't even a bulge. And an entire seven-room house had been swallowed up by the sand. And Roy had to move real quick. Because these sand dunes don't move, in many cases, at a set rate. For some reason or other, a sand dune will move 40 feet in one year and then not move for 15 years. And man, when it moves, nothing stops it. It's like trying to move the Rockies if the Rockies decided to move to Miami. They go. Nothing stops it. Well, Fleck and I stood up on that hill and Fleck says, Roy's house is in this sand. There it is. His house is in the sand. We saw these hills all around us. There must have been 30 or 40 hills stretching up the lakefront. God knows how many houses were in these hills. We knew of one. Roy's house. Preserved. You know, nothing preserves anything better than sand. Did you know that? See, sand doesn't have insects and worms in it like other soil does. That's why things in the Sahara Desert will be preserved for hundreds of years. Sand is inert. Doesn't have organisms in them. And there's that house, you know. And some nights, it's funny, rarely, I don't know why, maybe it's a quirk of my head. I think of Roy's house, laying in the sand forever, preserved. It's probably under 75 feet of sand now, maybe centuries, maybe thousands of years before somebody digs that house up. Some archaeologists will dig up Roy's house, completely preserved. And I knew Roy and how scared he was about his house and the night we had the the benefit for Roy. 
And I'm sure that Roy today, you know, he's a walking around guy. I'm sure that Roy today, he's, he's, you know, he's no old man. I'm sure that Roy walking around today rarely tells people about his house that got swallowed up by the sand. And if he did, the beer's like, come on. <laughs> come on, man. But when you see the earth moving, because of mysterious voices, winds that blow out of the north, saying things that you can't understand, and the lightning plays over the moving green waters, can damn well believe anything. That there are people living under the surface of the soil. That there are imps with pitchforks. This is one of the reasons why all countries where peat bogs exist also have legends of fairies and elves. Because over peat bogs, strange gases at night play. Have you ever watched swamp gas? My God, it scares you right out of your head. Methane, gas that rises out of peat. Strange puffs of smoke. Dancing yellow lights that seem to flutter among the trees. The dunes. Late at night, you can hear timber wolves. It was one of the last places in the country that timber wolves existed. You can hear them howling. When you're lying on your sleeping bag and you're in a Boy Scout troop supposed to be out learning about the woods and actually getting scared out of your skull. Have you ever camped on a dune knowing that under you is a gigantic piece of the earth that's quietly on its way to God knows where, bound on missions that no one can understand? what they'd find if they really started to investigate the Jersey Meadows. The Barrens. Have you ever been to the Jersey Barrens? Where the Jersey Devil walks? Every 20, 30 years he shows up. With fire playing about his head. Outside of town, in an underground peat bed. You know, these peat beds burn underground, apparently with no help from anybody. A bolt of lightning came down one afternoon, maybe. Spontaneous combustion. But all that happened that we could see was that an entire field started to smoke. Grayish green, sharp biting smoke. It was 
almost invisible. You had to look at it in the right light, and then you could see a film. It was like a thin scrim floating against the sky. The field was on fire, and you'd lay your hand on the grass, and it was hot. You imagine the earth hot? Something deep down underneath. And then it began to have sounds, because combustion under the earth causes pockets of gas and bubbles of power. You could hear it—a slight rumble, just a slight rumble. You had to listen carefully. And it took a quiet day to hear it. That thin scream drifted. One afternoon it happened, without any warning. Four houses, two garages, and part of a school fell sixty feet into the earth. Six people died. They never knew what hit them. One lady was making supper, just about to stir the mashed potatoes, when the ground fell out from under her. Underground fire burned for years. As long as I could remember, you could smell that smoke.、It、was in the air. Mysterious fires burning under the ground. And myths began to grow up, like the kid that had tried to take a shortcut one time across the underground fire, and he got swallowed up, and they never saw him again. And kids even claimed they saw it. They knew it. They saw it happen. I personally didn't. But I believe it must have happened.、And、that's the way myths roll on and on and on. And the Jersey Devil comes sneaking out of the barrens, breathing fire, and the hills move on. And Roy's house lays forever hidden from the eyes of man. <laughs> Who knows what evil lies under the street at Forty Second Eighth Avenue? Anybody that's been to that subway knows. Okay. We thought this would kind of make your Saturday easier. Kind of thought you'd see things, you know, have a little more sense of security. <laughs> Just figured it might help, fellow victims, fellow、uh, strugglers through the veil of tears.
knows what evil lurks. Who knows what evil? Who lurks what knows the men of time? your surroundings well, that rhetorical question was brought to you as a public service by this concerned station New York.